Hey friends, M. Faring here. I am so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope we're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hello, friends. Welcome to this transition episode from Genesis into all things related to Job. If you recall, I mentioned in the last episode that this shift is because we're reading through the Bible together chronologically, and most biblical historians put Job's timeline after Noah, but slightly before the time of Abraham. So to clarify, what this means for us is that we'll read Job's story in the book of Job, and then we'll go back over to Genesis, where we'll dive right into Abraham's story afterward. With that being said, let's start today by reviewing a couple summaries of the book of Job that I found very helpful in my understanding of the big picture meta narrative of what is going on. But spoiler alert here. However, given how heavy this book is, I think it will be good for us to have a point of reference to help us keep pushing through. Luckily for us, though, we will have access to information about what is happening in Job's life that he most likely never knew. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself here, so more on that later. In keeping all of that in mind, how about we begin with the Jesus Bible's introduction for this book, which reads, Job's story is one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. Christians and non-Christians alike are likely to know this tale of suffering and pain. The book begins and ends with a prose description of Job's life, comparing the suffering Satan inflicted on him against God's care, protection, and ultimate blessing. The majority of the book is made up of a series of speeches spoken by men we will see were Job's early supporters, but who quickly became his greatest critics. This book tackles massive questions that have loomed in the minds of sufferers throughout all time. How can a good God allow righteous people to suffer? Doesn't this either make God unloving or unjust? Why doesn't God stop human suffering and the suffering of all creation if he is in control of all things? These questions are posed throughout the book, though the answers seem to evade the grasp of Job, his wife, and his friends. Ultimately, God speaks and reminds Job that his knowledge is very limited when compared to the inexplicable wisdom of God. God is good, and he is in control, though his people may wonder where he is at certain times. God is always at work and is capable of using great pain and suffering to fulfill his good purposes for this world. Jesus' death on the cross is the ultimate example of God's control over evil. On the surface, it seems like the cross was the greatest evil that could ever been perpetuated against God's Son. Jesus' body, beaten and broken, hung on a Roman cross to the horror of his followers. It seemed that Jesus' battle against evil was lost, yet all the while, God was working to perfectly accomplish his glorious mission to save fallen sinners. His mission required that his Son go through suffering, not around it. Three days later, Jesus' empty tomb shouted victory to all creation, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, had defeated sin, death, and Satan through the most unlikely path by experiencing death himself. Christians today can take heart in the fact that while they will surely suffer, God is at work and he can be trusted. He has already won the war. So, side note here, more on our promised Messiah, his suffering leading up to and on the cross, plus the empty tomb three days later that shouted the defeat of Satan, sin, and death, all coming in the next episode. I can't wait. Moving on, a visual theology guide to the Bible says, The book of Job tells the story of a godly man who is placed under severe suffering 
including the loss of his possessions, his family, and his health. Though he cannot see the underlying reasons for his suffering, we as readers are able to see that Satan is tempting Job, tempting him with God's permission. While Job begins his suffering with praise to God, he later wavers between complaint and hope, asking God to reveal himself. At the very end of the book, the Lord does arrive and he challenges Job. Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? From Job chapter 40. After encountering God, Job responds with repentance and praise. I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show repentance. That is from Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. The book of Job shows us that even when we do not understand the reasons for our suffering, God is still in control. Okay, now that we've taken a look at a couple big picture story overviews, I'm pretty sure by now, if you were at all like me, you've had to take a look at the table of contents in your Bibles to find the book of Job. And so you have also by now discovered that it is nowhere near the book of Genesis. In fact, it is the 18th book of the Bible. Yep, the 18th. Truthfully, this is one of the reasons the Bible is hard to understand as one complete story, because it doesn't necessarily happen in the order we read it. So in an effort to try to help us make sense of what is happening between Genesis and Job, let's try to remember back to our intro conversation in Genesis when I mentioned the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These are often referred to as the Torah, which means law, and are also called the Pentateuch, which means five books. They cover God's growing relationship with his people from creation up to their possession of Canaan or the Promised Land. Please know that if these events don't mean anything to you yet, that's fine. We'll eventually get to all that. Pinky promise. (laughs) Okay, so after the Pentateuch are 12 books of history, Joshua through Esther, which travel in more or less a straight line chronologically, picking up where Deuteronomy leaves off. Then comes Job. This book doesn't include any references to other historical events, so there's not much to pull from it to confidently verify where it actually occurred. With that said, though, many Bible scholars, if not most, think that Job is one of the oldest books of the Bible and describes the life of a man who lived sometime after the flood and before Abraham. And since God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, most chronological reading plans place Job between Genesis 11 and Genesis chapter 12. Here are a few clues I found referenced in my studies that are commonly mentioned across resources as to the reason most chronological plans place Job's story between Noah and Abraham. Number one, Job's post-flood status seems even more possible when you consider this question Eliphaz asked in his final speech. While accusing Job of sinfulness, Eliphaz asked, Will you keep to the old path that the wicked have trod? They were carried off before their time, their foundations washed away by a flood. Job chapter 22, verse 16. Number two, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with the other patriarchs found in Genesis, Job, as the head of his family, offered up sacrifices to God. In the book of Job, we see no mention of the Levite priests, the tabernacle, the temple, the law of Moses, and so on. Number three, unlike Israelite law, where the family inheritance was passed on to daughters only in the absence of sons, Job gave his daughters an inheritance among their brothers. This is a patriarchal practice that also stopped in Moses' time. Number four, Job's material wealth was measured not in money, but in the amount of livestock he owned, which is more characteristic of patriarchal times. And number five, while the author of Job is unknown, the use of the divine name Yahweh indicates it was written or at least edited by a member of God's people. So, just to clarify what we have discussed so far, 
Job chapter 1 lands us about 400 years post-flood, and we meet a man named Job. Initially, we will notice that he sounds a lot like Noah. He's blameless and upright and fears God. In Noah's story, things got really dark, and then there was some relief at the end, and we'll see the same type of thing playing out in Job's story. One thing I would like to bring to your attention here before we begin, because yes, I've already read this whole book, so I can say with certainty here that it was really comforting to me to see what I'm about to talk about play out on these pages. God is sovereign over evil. God limited the actions of the enemy, and every action the enemy took against Job served God's greater purposes as we will see them unfold in the rest of Job's story. Just a heads up here, if you've never read this story, it gets really dark, and it does have a kind of happy ending. Keep looking for God in the dark spots of this story. He's there, I promise. Okay, so are you ready to dig in? Me too. Job chapter 1 from the New Living Translation begins. There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their home, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each of them. For Job said to himself, Perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from? the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is, but reach out and take everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting at their oldest brother's home. Suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground in worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. So first off, is it just me, or does this feel like a courtroom setting in heaven? Job seems to be on trial, as Satan serves as the accusing attorney in a courtroom where God is the judge. Somewhat like all the shows in the Law & Order franchise that I love to watch, but this one, this supernatural glimpse of God's heavenly courtroom, 
Well, it's a tough one to observe for sure. It definitely feels different. And goodness gracious, friends, the depth of loss and suffering we just witnessed here in these scriptures, the tremendous grief. We too have experienced times when suffering has come into our lives in one form or another, stealing joy, control, love, possessions, people, all that we once claimed as our own. The She Reads Truth Study Bible speaks to what is happening here when it says, Suffering stole many things from Job, following a rarely recorded conversation with God and Satan. When Satan threatened to strike down everything that Job owned, God's response was a little confusing. Very well, the Lord told Satan, everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. This passage does not say that God was overruled or overthrown by Satan. He is always in complete control of what's happening. So what made God allow Job's suffering? Like most of us in our own trials, Job never knew why. But his words at the end of chapter 1 give us something to consider. Gripped with grief, Job falls to the ground to worship, proclaiming, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God's glory has the final word. When we compare Job to Christ, the ultimate sufferer, we find a similar outcome. God allows Christ to be crucified, but just as Jesus identifies with and understands our suffering, he also provides an end to it, proclaiming it is finished. God's glory has the final word. I also found this perspective in Job, Suffering in the God Who Speaks study from She Reads Truth. It reads, In the economy of God, Job's suffering was an honor, a privilege. After all, should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Chapter 2, verse 10. Our Creator and Redeemer handpicked Job for the honorable position of carrying the weight of pain. While God is not the author of evil, He did choose Job with the foreknowledge that He would carry suffering well, because even in her pain, it's a great conduit for God's glory. Can you imagine how different our lives would be if we began to view some of our pain and disappointment as a divine privilege? What if we saw a difficult journey as one God handpicked us to take, knowing that He Himself would strengthen us to make the trek, and more importantly, that His glory would be illuminated through our efforts? Changing our perspective on suffering, viewing it as an honor instead of a dumb luck or cruelty, could absolutely change the course of our lives and deeply impact the world around us. One thing that is becoming increasingly clear to me that we should be learning here is that we can't always look at struggles and determine a reason for them. It's not always because of disobedience. In fact, for Job, those things happened to him because of his righteousness. We can't always look at our circumstances and make a determination about what God is doing or why. It's an opportunity to trust Him and lean in, regardless of what's happening. And if our struggles aren't the result of sin, then God's nearness will still be a comfort to us regardless of what comes our way. Before we go any further, I want us to take a closer look at the description found in here in Job chapter 1 verse 1, which reads this way in the New International Version translation of the Bible. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. The NIV Faith Life Study Bible note for this verse says this about the word blameless. The Hebrew term used here, tam, indicates general purity before God, not perfection. It indicates integrity and innocence. And the word upright, the term here is yeshar, refers to something being straight or level, and it indicates honesty and righteousness. To be yeshar is to be obedient to God. And it also says he feared God, which describes a reverent attitude of respect, obedience, and trust toward God that is closely associated with wisdom. Job's integrity is a result of his attitude toward God. One other seemingly random note that I picked up from my research is that I think if I were to pronounce the word Satan correctly, it would be Satan. But I'm not trying to get too weird here, though. <laughs> Oh, so as a way of review, after God initiates a conversation about Job with one of his enemies, the enemy concocts a plan to test Job. 
and we see God allowing it. Here's what's interesting to me in this section. God didn't create the plan for testing Job, but God allowed it. He wasn't the active agent in the evil done by Satan, but he was still sovereign over it. And in his mercy, he limited it. Satan was on a leash. He wasn't allowed to take Job's life. Okay, are you with me? I know, heavy, heavy, heavy stuff here for sure, my friends. In chapter 6 of It's Not Supposed to Be This Way, Lisa Turkhurst speaks about the comfort she found in the story of Job in this way. Problems caused by forces outside of us often feel unjust. Why does God allow them? Indeed, many people question whether a good God exists because they think a good and powerful God wouldn't allow the terrible things that happen to innocent people. God rarely tells us why he allows any particular tragedy. Indeed, he may have many reasons, and we might not understand most of them. But he has given us the book of Job to show us of some of the good he can bring from suffering. Job begins the story as a blameless man who feared God and shunned evil. He isn't perfect, but he deals with his faults in the way God has instructed, by offering sacrifices. God is so proud of him that he points him out to Satan as a person Satan has failed to corrupt. Satan responds by leveling a charge against both God and Job. Satan accuses that Job only loves God because of God's blessing. As we previously read in Job chapter 1 verses 9 through 11, but this time in the New International Version, does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. God could ignore Satan's accusation, but he doesn't. Instead, he allows Satan to remove Job's wealth and even take his children to see the true nature of Job's heart. Does Job love God because of his blessings, or would he trust God even in the midst of great loss? Many read this story of Job and question God's offering Job to be tested with such suffering. It's hard to reconcile a loving father allowing this, but it's good to wrestle with the notion of a concept called retributional theology. Think of it as a transactional relationship with God that is directly tied to my behavior. If I do right, God will bless me. If I do wrong, God will curse me. However, the story of Job proves that this is not the way God operates. Instead, God uses the events in the life of Job to show us that there is a greater purpose in everything we face that we may or may not ever know on this side of eternity. As a matter of fact, though, the blessings in Job's life are restored, but he never knows why all of this happened to him, that in the end he remains faithful. But make no mistake, friends, Job was not a robot. He was not superhuman, and he very much struggled in the process. Job chapter 1, verses 20 through 22 in the New International Version of the Bible tell us Job's initial response to the horrible news of this loss. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Let's just stop here for a moment to consider this question. What are your thoughts about a God who gives and takes away without explanation? I personally think of the analogy that our lives are like a puzzle piece that only God has the cover to view. He knows it is best for our growth and His glory, where our lives fit in the bigger picture story that He is writing. I hope you take a moment to pause to answer this question in your own heart and mind because it is important to consider as we begin diving into the book of Job together in the coming weeks. The Spoken Gospel gives us this overview of what we have read so far in our time together in this episode and speaks about the transactional relationships as we just read about from Lisa Turkhurst. The book of Job wants to teach us wisdom, particularly how to think wisely about God, especially when we suffer. The book introduces us to an innocent, moral, and upright man named Job. He has a large family and a massive amount of wealth. 
Job is careful not only to obey God, but also continually sacrifice for the potential sins of his children. Then we are introduced to a heavenly council meeting and a character called the accuser. God praises Job's innocence and integrity, but the accuser suggests Job is being moral only because he's after God's rewards. The accuser accuses God of mismanaging his universe. He believes God's policy of rewarding good behavior means that Job's morality is purely transactional. The only reason Job obeys is to get God's stuff. While rewarding good people and punishing bad people might get God external and ritual obedience, it won't cause Job to bless or love God. God allows the accuser to put him and his management of the universe on trial. If an innocent Job suffers and curses God, the accuser wins and God's policies are proven to be flawed. So God sends the accuser to take away everything good Job had been given. We will see in Job chapter 2 that God grants permission to cover Job in open sores. But despite the accuser's predictions, Job refuses to curse God. Instead, Job blesses him and recognizes that integrity and innocence don't always guarantee blessing. But the trial of God's management of the universe has just begun. It's easy for us to believe that God works through some type of transactional system. Suffering is caused because of our sin. Health and wealth are connected to our morality. Thinking of God transactionally makes us feel perpetually worried. We'll always be concerned God is just waiting to punish us for some sin, some infraction, or some mistake. We will always be suspicious that our suffering is really God's way of getting back at us. So we'll either beat ourselves up to prove God doesn't need to punish us, or we'll resent God for being so nitpicky. This is exactly the dynamic the accuser claims God has instituted in the world and will cause Job to curse God. But God is not transactional. As Job said, God is both good when he gives and takes away. Blessing and suffering don't operate according to strict equations, but divine wisdom. The whole book of Job will explore this idea, but Jesus proves it's true. God blesses us while we were still sinners. Jesus died for our sins when our bad deeds outweighed our good. Jesus did not demand what he was transactionally owed by his title as God's son with his perfect life and sacrificial death. Instead, he gave it up. And through his death, everything that belongs to God now belongs to us. God does not rule his universe according to strict transactions. He rules with lavish, loving, and self-giving wisdom. Like Job, we don't need to resent or curse God. We can bless the one who took away our sin, gave himself to us, and doesn't give us what we deserve. This is the first step in thinking wisely about God, especially when we suffer. May the Holy Spirit open your eyes to see the God who gives and takes away, and may you see Jesus as God, whose life was taken so that we may be given what we do not deserve. Wow. Just wow, friends. So to develop this thought a bit further, as we will see, Job foreshadows Jesus in that both men suffer greatly because of their obedience to God in order to further God's purposes, to defeat the accusations of the accuser, and to glorify the Lord. Let's read a bit from First 5, Suffering and Sovereignty Study, for a bit more perspective about what is going on so far in Job's life. As we begin our study of Job, we're faced with two hard questions that just might follow us throughout all 42 chapters of this daunting book. Why do godly people suffer? And why does God allow undeserved suffering? It's interesting how this story of suffering begins with a picture-perfect portrait of Job. Scripture tells us Job was blameless and upright. He certainly was a man who was abundantly blessed in many ways. Job had a large family and a thriving livelihood. He feared God and turned away from evil. God was pleased with Job and even said that there was no one on earth like him. Job was rich in character, possessions, and family life. But in one day, four consecutive disasters struck, leaving Job holding only memories of his ten children, his servants, and all his livestock. Within hours, Job lost everything except his wife and his own life. Why? 
If Job would have known about God's conversation with Satan, he would have had been better equipped to understand why these awful things were happening. It still would have been incredibly painful, but at least Job would have known it was a test and not something he had done to justify the calamity. This test was a way to prove Satan wrong about his false assumptions of Job's faithfulness and for God to be glorified. But Job had no idea what was happening in the heavenlies. And yet, even in the wake of sudden destruction, great suffering, and unknowing, Job's initial response was this. Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job acknowledged that he came into this world with nothing and would leave taking nothing with him. Job knew that all that he had belonged to God and that God was worthy of the utmost praise, both in the giving and in the taking away. In those excruciating moments, Job became a living example of how the righteous can respond to suffering as they trust God's sovereignty and hold on to his truth when everything seems to be stripped away. It's much easier to be grateful for God's undeserved blessings and undeserved grace toward us. But what about suffering that we think we don't deserve? What have you learned from Job's initial response in Job chapter 1 that challenges you to still be grateful to God in times of suffering? What an important question for each of us to consider as we continue our study of Job in the weeks to come. Let me repeat it one more time for us. What have you learned from Job's initial response in Job chapter 1 that challenges you to still be grateful to God in times of suffering? My challenge for each of us is to process this one a bit more in prayer and journaling. What we believe about God in our times of suffering truly matters, my friends. The NLT Life Application Study Bible says it this way. As we read the book of Job, we have information that the characters of the story do not. Job, the main character of the book, lost all he had through no fault of his own. As he struggled to understand why all this was happening to him, it became clear that he was not meant to know the reasons. He would have to face life with the answers and explanations held back. Only then would his faith fully develop. We must experience life as Job did, one day at a time, and without complete answers to all of life's questions. Will we, like Job, trust God no matter what? Or will we give in to the temptation to say that God doesn't really care? All this talk about the unknowns found in our times of suffering remind me of the lyrics from a worship song that has spoken so deeply to my heart, especially in moments of grief and pain. Here are a few of the lyrics from Though You Slay Me by Shane and Shane, along with a sermon excerpt from John Piper as featured in the song link found in the show notes. And as a maybe not so random thought from M here, this might be a good one for all of us to keep on repeat as we dive deeper into Job's grief and confusion in the chapters to come. Okay, with that said, the song begins. I come, God, I come. I return to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You struck down to bind me up. You say you do it all in love, that I might know you in your suffering. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you ruin me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. My heart and flesh may fail. The earth below give way. But with my eyes, with my eyes, I'll see the Lord lifted high on that day. Behold the lamb that was slain, and I know every tear was worth it all. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. Though you take from me, I will bless your name. Though you run me, still I will worship. Sing a song to the one who's all I need. Though tonight I'm crying out, let this cup pass from me now. You're still all I need. You're enough for me. You're enough for me. Oh, my heart. Now listen to John Piper's powerful words as featured in the middle of this worship song. Not only is all your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light, 
in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from the fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will receive because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It was doing something. It's not meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies or your kid dies or you have cancer at 40, when a car careens in the sidewalk, don't say it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, do not lose heart. But take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach them into your mind until your heart sing with confidence that you are new and cared for. So if you find yourself struggling right now to see the purpose of pain or to see a good God in the midst of suffering, Paul offers this hope I found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16-18. through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So, so much goodness found in the Though You Slay Me song and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Please, please, please promise me that you will listen over and over again to this song, plus refer back to this scripture in the weeks to come in our studies together. Before we end our time together, friends, I would like us to take a moment to join together in prayer. Father God, please help each one of us to recognize that like Job, we don't need to resent or curse you in our times of suffering. Remind our hearts that we can instead bless the one who took away our sin gave himself to us, and doesn't give us what we deserve. So amazing to consider, Father God. May the Holy Spirit open our eyes to see you as our God who gives and takes away. And may we also see Jesus in those hard moments, the one whose life was taken so that we may be given what we do not deserve. Please also remind our broken, tender hearts that regardless of how much suffering we'll experience in our lifetime, one thing is for sure. A day will come when there will be no more sorrow or pain, no more heartache or tears, no more loss or suffering. Our joy will be made complete, and we will come face to face with our Savior Jesus, the one and only who embraced the cross and endured the greatest undeserved suffering completely for us. Help us to know deep in our hearts that although it's true that suffering is a part of this broken world and sometimes a devastating result of sin, you can and will use our sufferings for your greater good. Though our suffering can be extremely painful, it can have purpose when we allow you, God, at the center of it. Is our suffering easy? Absolutely not. Are you with us in the suffering? Absolutely, yes. Amazing, just amazing, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so friends, if you have liked this episode, could you share it with a friend? Subscribe, rate, review. You know, do all the things people tend to do with a podcast. (laughs) I sure do want to thank you in advance. And as I mentioned a bit ago, don't forget to open our Bibles together with M. Faring Podcast releases every other Wednesday. Up next time, we will take a break from Job to spend some time studying Holy Week in preparation for Easter. With that said, as we discuss in our Advent studies, I want to encourage all of us that we should read familiar scripture with the goal of seeing it with new eyes and a fresh take. Let us not become so comfortable with scripture that we just pass over those words with an, oh yeah, I know this part, I've heard this all before mentality, but instead read it once again to see what God would like to teach us today in this reading. My prayer is that God will open all of our eyes and give us a new way of seeing this story we've possibly heard hundreds of times. 
and that he will give us a renewed sense of wonder as we look closer at the incredible gift of our risen Savior. I know I sure can't wait. In the meantime, though, be sure to check out the show notes pages on my mfaring.com website for all the episode links and details. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.